Where else can you go to not only find the information on how to train your dog, but the best deals on training equipment as well? Standing Stone Supply has everything you need to create that next versatile champion from DT system electronics down to even emergency med kits to take with you on your hunting trips. If you need some help with your training program, then their step-by-step -step online course might be a great fit for you, making it a convenient one-stop shop for the knowledge as well as the gear to take your training to the next level. Hit up standingstonesupply.com and promo code GDIY will save you 10%. Being an upland hunter in the south nowadays unfortunately means a lot of travel to try and find birds for my dogs. This means it's even more important that my map scouting is reliable to justify the effort. This is where Onyx comes in. I can honestly say that Onyx directly impacts the level of success I find on my trips. Whether it's the private versus public land boundaries, the expanding number of unique layers and features by state, or the 3D mapping capabilities, my initial step in planning my hunting trip starts with Onyx. To know where you're going, you have to first know where you stand. Check out Onyx Hunt Maps and use code G. GDIY 20 at checkout to save 20%. GDIY profiles are bonus episodes that tell the stories of how your everyday handler got into the gun dog world. You'll hear plenty of examples of what to do as well as what not to do and how they learn from those experiences. These episodes are being put out to tell the honest stories that we as do-it-yourself dog handlers can all relate to. If you think you would be a good fit for a profile episode, please go to gundogyourself.com and complete the contact form and we may get back to you so that you can share your story. All right, everybody, welcome back to another edition of the GDIY Profile. My guest this time is Bobby Brown. Bobby, how you doing, bud? I'm doing great, Nick. How about yourself? I live in the dream as always. Let's go ahead and start off with what we start off with on all these episodes. Go ahead and tell everybody where you're calling from as well as what kind of dogs you run. Okay, I'm calling from Grand Junction, Colorado, which is on the western slope by Utah. And I run two dog, two mixed breed dogs that are called Wessel Pointers by the guy I got them from, and then two Poodle Pointers. All right. What are the Wessel Pointers? What what are they mixed with? So going all the way back to when he started, which was, I, I want to say it was about six or seven generations ago. He started with L. Hugh Pointer, GSP, and Labrador. All right. So he just wanted to combine pretty much three of some of the more popular hunting breeds out there and, and make it in his own little package, if you will. Yeah, he kind of went the other way with the lab. They The Labradoodles, they get rid of the lab coat, and he was like, no, I want a pointing dog with a lab coat. <laughs> All right. Well, it's, it just goes to show there's the right formula or dog out there for somebody. So tell me, you said that you got three of them, so they, got, they had to show you something that you really liked about them. Yeah, so the first one I got is actually Larry Bird. He's the oldest dog that I have, and I was looking for um, – a Labrador breeder in Idaho because I'd had labs before and the internet can be a dangerous place. And then all of a sudden you end up here. And I called this guy and I honestly liked what he had to say and what he was reading. So I was, I was like, well, you know, Hey, life's too short not to know everything because I am not a very breed loyal person. So I tried one out and he's my oldest dog. And, you know, I went in it very hesitant, but to his credit, they're exactly what he said they were. He said, it's a dog that's got a lab coat, dock tail, but it points and it points with a high tail. And the oldest one has been a fun dog to learn the versatile pointing side of things, but it still had a lot of mentality that I was used to with the labs. Yeah. And so obviously with it not being an actual full breed of any of those versions of dogs, you can't really compete or do any of the games with them, but you didn't really care at the time. You just wanted a good hunting dog. 
Yeah. See, I'm, I'm a bird hunter. I'm originally from Nebraska, so I've been hunting my entire life. And life just had me in a spot where I didn't have a dog anymore. And being out West here, this is pointing dog country. You know, right. you can get away with labs in the Midwest and that's a good flyway out here. This country is way too big, in my opinion, to be running a lab. So I started looking for a pointing versatile dog and there, and that's where you end up at. So growing up in Nebraska, I'm assuming that you got to hunt and, and really learn over there in the sand hills then. Yeah, so I'm from eastern Nebraska. So most of my hunting at the time when I was younger was pheasant and bobwhites. And we had a lot of them where I grew up. And then we would travel west with friends' dads and that kind of stuff and hunt the sand hills. As, but that was not a day-by-day or a week-by-week thing. It was a trip thing. Growing up, and it sounded like you had a lot of fun and, and some good memories growing up. Tell me, have you always consistently had dogs or did you kind of get out of it for a while and come back to it? So I got out of it for a little bit. I still had dogs, but they weren't the hunting dogs. After I went through college and I first started my, you know, and my first started my career. And then when I moved to Western Colorado, I was, I was a continuation of my career. Um, when you first move to a new place like that, the bird hunting is definitely out here is not top of the line. So it takes a while to learn and there's some preserves and they're not really my thing. They're fun for dogs every once in a while, but they're not my thing. And then I kind of got opened up to the world of Western hunting and where I live. And I was like, oh, there's actually a lot to do here if you're willing to do it. So that's when I went back into the labs and started going hunting again. Roger that. So what what's your main targets? What do you like to concentrate on and focus on out there in Western Colorado? Or do you get out and do a fair amount of traveling as well still? I get out and do a lot of traveling. We're getting ready to go on a trip next week to New Mexico. But out here... My primary bird of focus is a chucker, and that's just because based upon the season length, it's the one we have to do the most. My favorite bird to actually hunt is the sage-grouse. Sage-grouse. What is it about the sage-grouse that you like so much? I for, I love where they live, for starters, but for two, for my money, they're the most, they are the most honest dog bird with dogs that I've ever dealt with. If your dog is too close the covey will flush, but you get an opportunity to redo it over again as they break up a little bit. And if your dog is fair to them, they'll hold tight as tight can be as long as the dog is fair. Does that make sense? So that to me, they're very fair with dogs, which makes them a world of fun to hunt. And the way that they intermix in the sage rush and you're looking for just the thing that's a little different in a sea of something that looks the same is pretty cool. Gotcha. So you move out there, you start falling in love with sage grouse, you're doing some chucker hunting, and that's where you all of a sudden start looking into getting a a Wessel pointer and then eventually poodle pointers. What was it that brought you to the poodle pointers? I spend a lot of time with a pro trainer. I volunteer a lot of my afternoons helping him. Essentially, I'm the bird boy. And for him, it's great because I'm the free bird boy. For me, (laughs) it's great. I'm helping out with dogs. And a lot of what he does is rich. He used to do a lot of labs, so it's still retriever-based. And he was very adamant because I like a dog who retrieves a lot. It means a lot to me that you want to chase a bumper, that you want to go get the bird, that I don't have to make you want to do that, so to speak. And he kept mentioning that it's something that I might like. So then I started doing my homework because I did want to compete the dogs. I do that stuff, and that's what you can't do with a Wessel Pointer. You can't test them. You can't compete them. 
And I'm actually on the board for the new Western Slope NAVDA, and I really wanted to have dogs that I could do that with. So that's how I ended up on the Poodle Pointer. Interesting. So you kind of got into it to, for the love of hunting. You just wanted to go hunting and have your hunting dog again. And that's where the Wessel Pointer came in. And then you found yourself wanting to dip your toe into the competition or testing side of things. Yes, exactly. And how's that come to light? Have you gotten to compete? Have you done a test with them yet? You know, kind of walk me through your experience getting involved in that. So, yes, I've gotten to test. Both Buddha Pointers have been NA tested. And the first one, which is Magic, Magic Johnson. I have Larry Bird and Magic Johnson. <laughs> the first one, Magic, was my first go into NAVDA. So uh, his NA test, the breeder asked if I would do it. And I went into it thinking, I'm going to go as far as this dog will take me. And I went down to Arizona to NA test him. And the handler definitely let the dog down in that situation. I got a 98 prize three and walked out of there slightly optimistic, but also crushed because I believe the genetic potential of the dog was like up here and the handler got him here. I kind of, I got confused and panicked and then started putting force fetching in front of just allowing the dog to enjoy the water. Cause I was like, well, if I force fetch him, he'll go into the water. If I tell him to go into the water and uh, at his test, I threw a bumper out there. We just finished force fetch and I said, fetch. And he looked at me and said, no. And then I was like, well, this this was silly. Now I had no way to back it up. I didn't have a collar. I couldn't grab on. You know, there was nothing I could do that I was like, well, I really can't enforce this. We went through 14 bumpers, running up and down the bank, throwing them into the water, throwing rocks. And then finally, I did get him to swim three times, which was their end of the deal. But he, the time frame when I got him, getting him introduced to water would have been very much spending more time at the water would have been smarter rather than trying to force fetch him to make him do something for me first, I guess. Yeah. So you fell into the corner where some people just feel like on the NA test, force fetch them, get them, get them to where they're going to go and get that bumper and go into the water to pass the test. And you hear a whole bunch of different outcomes when it comes to that, because you're talking about force fetching a puppy, essentially, you know, when you talk about the NA test is you are force fetching. And oftentimes that can turn into probably doing it a little bit sooner than what each individual dog needs. Of course, that's a a dog by dog basis, but you've obviously got to the point to where you did it and, and it still turned into where the dog wouldn't go. Did the dog have any natural desire to go into the water before you did force fetch? Or was this just kind of a, a a side effect, if you will, of putting some pressure and doing some force fetch with the young dog? So he, he would get water was never his favorite because he was young. Yeah. Um, to his credit, that dog, I can't keep him out of the water now. And that was trainer error. So I think what really happened was a culmination of a lot of big boy or big dog pressure, so to speak, by going right into force fetch. And then we got to the point where he, it wasn't, I don't think it was an intentional, but it was kind of like, man, I, no, I don't want to do that right now. <laughs> I don't like water that much. And I've never been in this body of water. And now you're telling me to go get something and I'm not comfortable with that. Yeah. So that was your first one going through the NA test. I got two questions. Did you change things up on the second one in in regards to the force fetch and how you approach the water? And then two, did you continue any further testing with this first one? Okay. One, the first question was, did I change anything with the second dog? No, honestly, I didn't have to. The second dog, it's funny. I have two dogs of the same breed and I have one who 
you can train like a lab. He loves to retrieving. You put a bumper out there. It doesn't matter. He's a year old. If you put it 150 yards away, he's going to go get it for you. Whereas my first one was not, it's one of the things I laugh is I got a poodle pointer because I like to retrieve. My first poodle pointer is like a setter or a pointer. Loves to hunt, points from a long way away, and retrieving is kind of, eh, I mean, he'll do it when you shoot a bird, but he doesn't get excited about it ever. It's just not what he does. But with the second one, one of the things that I guess I'm probably on fast forward because I have so many dogs is I the second one, I was like, I'm going to let this dog be who he is and we're going to test him along the way and we're going to let him develop at his rate, if that makes sense. Yeah. So the second one, his NA was a 108 prize one. And again, the one thing that we goofed up on was tracking and that was a handler error. And everybody says, how do you do that? I, I was using a slip lead to train tracking and I will never do that again. I'll only ever use the collar. When I let him go on that pheasant track, I grabbed one side of it and it came through his collar and then smacked him right on top of the head. And he stopped and popped and turned around and looked at me. And of course I'd already let go of the leash. So I couldn't say anything. I couldn't do anything. And then he became very confused about what to do. So then he started casting left and right and left and right. And eventually he got on a track, which is why he was able to still get a prize one, but it was not a clean track like you're looking for. And man, the track, I tell everybody, you know, handler involvement in the NA test, there's not a whole lot of areas in that test that the handler is really expected to do something like make or break style with the dog but that tracking how you release the dog that is one what you just said is personally why i'm not the biggest fan of using a slip lead or one of the little you know shortened handles if you will and letting go it's just to me like if if you're already going to be holding the slip lead or something that close like just grab the flat collar and then you don't it's one less thing to have to worry about to where i've heard from a few people such describing exactly what just happened to you. It's not completely unheard of when you're adding extra things to the equation, if that makes sense. Oh yeah, absolutely. And like I said, you learn lessons as you go. Well, I won't ever put another thing in between there. I liked the last two feet of control and training before you let go. With that comes, I should have just used the the, the collar and yeah. the tap. Yep. And so did you, did you continue any further testing on either of the poodle pointers? Yeah. So the first poodle pointer is he's now a a UT 188 prize one. And oddly enough, I always point out, I go seven months after that dog got a prize three NA, he did a prize one utility. As you start to slow down and not try to rush the dog, you start to realize the dog has a lot of genetic potential and you can just go with it. We started training for the UT because that's what we, you know, as our nav does, like, well, that's his next step. And I wasn't planning on even testing him last year. And then it was the minute we started duck search training, the dog just completely changed on me. He was super driven. He was super excited about everything. He'd always had phenomenal obedience because I obedience walk him every single day. So once that flip switched, I was like, oh, we're going to try to do this. And he did incredibly well. He did had a test day that, you know, obviously I'll never forget. Neither will anybody else. His duck search was memorable. I had, everybody was cheering the dog. He made a very good decision completely on his own, which saved it. The pond I have to train on is pretty small. And he had learned he can cover it in about six minutes. He could cover everything. 
So he'd always find a duck within six minutes. And I even told the judge, I said, I'm, I said, I hope he finds a duck because I know I can send him again, but I don't know if he's going to stay over there for 10 minutes without coming back. And the judge looked at me and, he go, and I go, it's going to be about six minutes if it's anything. And at five minutes, 45 seconds, that dog poked his head out of the cattails or on the other side and looked at me and I went, oh no, he's going to do it. And he swam back across the water to me, searched on both sides for me a little bit. And I never changed my gaze. I stared across. I wouldn't look at him. I didn't address him. And after searching the bank on my side for about 45 seconds or a minute, that dog just turned around and said, well, I guess there's still a duck over there. And then he swam back across the water on his own. And then he actually found the duck at 10 minutes because I was trying to get him to come back. And he found the duck and brought it back to hand. So when he crossed the water, you could hear everybody who was watching go, yes. <laughs> back, you know, so that was anyway, that, that was the an intelligent dog who made a decision on his own without having to be resent. Yeah. So I got to hear, how did you go about starting the duck search training? Because if you have a dog that, again, the the prize three because of not going in the water and reluctance with even with the force fetch, how in seven months you said that switch flipped in on the dog as soon as you started on duck search training, how were you training duck search? What caused that switch to flip? So everything was live ducks that couldn't, when I started him, I would stand over on the bank and you'd throw the duck that was in the water. And that dog would try to swim across the water and then you'd let him go chasing it. And during a couple of those repetitions before we went to, he could see the duck get thrown on the other side of the water is when you saw it kick in. That prey drive of him chasing ducks on the water just flipped the switch. That was the thing that changed everything for him. He'd always been a great hunting dog in the field. But he didn't, he, I've always, I always said he didn't have a lot of like, oomph. he didn't have a lot of go. And when he started chasing live ducks in the water, everything changed. Then it was field work was all of a sudden, I'm like trying to slow him back down. I was like, whoa, 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 you were steady to shot and fall here. What happened here? But he started seeing those birds going down and he was starting to break and starting to do things that were to me a more driven dog. Yeah. No, I mean, it, that's a great example of something that, you know, I, I filled some questions and requests from listeners throughout the years of, you know, say they have a dog that maybe doesn't have the most prey drive or the desire to search and they ask for tips or tricks to kind of wake it up. And I tell everybody, like, go to the water and, and let them get a nice duck chase in a small little pond and just, you know, they, they can see it. It's popping up. They're getting close. They're missing out because, you know, if you get a quality live duck, they shouldn't get caught very often. I mean, it's going to happen, but it should be ducking and diving and swimming away. And uh, that can really wake up uh, a kind of hesitant dog that maybe doesn't have enough drive to where if they show interest in that duck and you do a couple chases, that can wake something up inside of them. Yeah, and I can attest uh, 100% to that. That is, I mean, that is when you saw the dog change completely. It was yeah. just all of a sudden he was barking, jumping around, ready to go. And just all of a sudden, like I said, he was breaking on retrieves. The dog who doesn't even like to retrieve that much was like, wait a minute, that bird went down. I'm after it. And he had, he was super easy to train up until that point because he was, you know, we called him Eeyore for a long time. <laughs> you know, he did everything, but it wasn't with that kind of like fire that I'm used to seeing in a dog. And then all of a sudden it just happened. And, you know, yeah. and 
So I got to ask about the dog names real quick. You got Magic Johnson. You got you got Larry Bird. Or do we have Michael Jordan? What are we talking about? <laughs> no, we were. I almost went. My girlfriend helps me name the dogs. I, I give her that. And we were going to continue down the basketball road. But the other poodle pointer's name is Yass, named after Carl Yastrzemski for the Boston Red Sox. Because my my names come from Boston sports fans. I've had Larry Bird. I've had Tom Brady. I've had Boston Bruin. I've had Rajon Rondo. So <laughs> that's, that's where my lineage of dogs comes from. And then we had Larry Bird. And then the next one, we almost named it Magic Russell for Bill Russell. But then she, my girlfriend was like, no, Magic Johnson's just way better. It's just way better. And I was like, yeah, we'll get a little competition here. So I went Magic Johnson. But then with Yaz, I went back to the Boston team. So he's Yaz. And then the last Wessel Pointer's name is actually Ringo, which is just an, he's a Western outlaw is all he was. He went, we went away from sports names for that one. <laughs> that, that you didn't have any more Boston themed names. You didn't. Oh, I, didn't... Still, I still got a whole, I still got a whole list of them if I ever go that way, but yeah. we'll see. I mean, dude, you got, you got Pedro, Movon, Nomar, man. You got a whole bunch of folks to go through. <laughs> yeah, Pop. Poppy's always on the list. Pedro's always on the list. Yeah, I got I got a lot of names that are still there. Yeah, absolutely. I love it. So uh, are, are you currently? One more, one yeah. more thing, Magic. I am going to the Invitational with him next year. That's, that's That was literally be... my next question is, is oh, okay. are, are we working and preparing for the Invitational at this point? Yeah, absolutely. So it's hunting season right now. And, you know, I got a lot of dogs, so we spent a lot of time with boot leather. I mean, you know, Mondays is a day off, and then we're hunting Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and then over the weekends. But in the afternoon when I get home, which is when I do my obedience walks with the dogs and that kind of stuff, I believe Magic's toughest is going to be the blind retrieve. So we are now working on T patterns and that kind of stuff. And I believe that that'll be his toughest area just because it's, you know, as I told you, it's his least driven thing, to be honest with you. So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, out of the the natural talents, it sounds like, or natural abilities, that's the least on his list, if you will. And and so, I mean, you can wake that drive up, but now you got to be able to steer him, so to speak. Yeah. And it's just, you know, he just, like I said, he's he doesn't do anything retrieving wise overly fast. It's very methodical, but it's not fast. So him and I are learning what it is you know blind retrieves are a trust thing with the dog and he's learning all right so i don't i know the bumpers are over there and i gotta go get them so we're working through all of that stuff he's a smart dog and after a couple reps less is more with him after a couple reps he'll even sit down and look at you like i'm bored i'm like all right i got it you know where they are you're understanding the concept we can leave this one alone for a little bit no, nah, makes makes sense and the importance of knowing your dog some dogs need the high reps other dogs is kind of it's a point of diminishing returns. It's like, you know, some dogs, you can make them do it, but you could argue that if they're bored or they're just not feeling it, like you could be doing you could be making the next session even harder on yourself. It's like some is less is more type of dogs. And that's the importance of knowing the personality of each individual dog. Right. So what, how's the hunting season been going for you? You said that Chucker and Sage Grouse, you know, out in Western Colorado, that's, you don't hear too often Western Colorado as like a destination hunt, especially for either one of those species. But, you know, how's your season been going so far? Kind of walk me through the bird numbers, success rates, failure rates, stuff like that. Okay. Yeah. So I know, and I was hesitant to bring that up because even in Colorado, I think people on the front range don't know 
what we have over here, but I take a couple of them hunting anyway. Um, so season started out beginning in September. That's the one thing is our season starts really early here. So it's always hot. And then it closes at the end of November. We don't get the really good shocker hunting. I have to go to Utah for that in December and January. That's when it's really good. But anyway, we took me and my girlfriend took eight days off to hunt sage grouse. We took the weekend, the full week. And then that following week, because I love hunting those birds so much in that sense, you know, I was talking to a buddy of mine, we probably moved a hundred birds in a week we, and you know, they're the young dogs and even everybody gets their individual time. It's you go out and you hunt for two hours, you put him up, you go get the next one. It's really hard on the person hunting because you get really tired, but that way the dogs all get their time to do it by themselves. And then Magic and Larry get to hunt together a lot because they're both at the same level. They're supposed to be steady to wing shot and fall. They honor each other, that kind of stuff. So they get hunted together occasionally just to kind of work things out. And I like having two dogs on the ground. Chucker hunting, this has been, due to the, all the moisture last year, it's been a great year, a great year. I try to tell people this. They, I see birds, and I get to watch the dogs work on birds almost every time I go out. Not every time. And I'm with the younger dogs. There's a lot with both dogs. There's a lot of restraint and chucker are a frustrating bird to say the least. You can get some of the best dog work you'll ever see one day. And then the next day you're watching your dog chase them up a hill going, what just happened? I, you know, cause they like to move a lot. And to me, they're not an honest bird. It just kind of depends on what kind of mood they're in. They may run a bunch on your dogs that day. They may walk on them. They may fly. They may hold tight. You just, you know, it's a, it's an odd circumstance thing with the birds. Yeah. Well, and you have a lot more eyes looking out for them. I mean, I know sage grouse group up and covey up and stuff like that, but I, I would say the chucker probably have a little bit more birds in their groups on average than the sage grouse. If I had to, if I had to take oh, a yeah. guess, I mean, especially oh, no, no. depending on the type of year, especially when the chuckers start forming those super coveys and you start kicking up, you know, 40, 50, 60 birds in a group. So you got a lot more eyes that see the dogs coming and that's going to, they're going to notify everybody like, Hey, get out of Dodge. Let's, you know, whether that's running or flushing, take your pick. But yeah, it's uh covey birds can be tricky like that to where sometimes they play ball. And then other times it's kind of like, well, what made you flush? We're not even, you know, within a hundred yards of you right now. Like, why are y'all kicking out that early? Yeah. And that's, and that's true. And Chucker for me are, you know, like I said, I always tell my girlfriend this all the time. I'm like, they're not my favorite bird to hunt. I enjoy hunting them. I enjoy the work. I enjoy how hard they are. But just because of what you can get with the dogs, sometimes they can be more frustrating than they are enjoyable. Yeah. Do you ever chase blue grouse or anything else out your way? I know the blues up in the elevation uh, can be a lot of fun, but it's kind of hit or miss on whether guys like to fo like target on them or not. Yeah, in September, if the weekends are hot, I, I will go up and hunt blue grouse. That bird is humbling. I've never been hunted another bird. That is that random to me. And I could just, I'm probably just not experienced in them enough. I couldn't, you'll find them in a certain type of cover and you're like, this is where they are. And then you go to that same thing and they're not there. And then you go completely somewhere else and then they're there again. They're a very, I've had a, a good amount of success with them. And when there's a dog around, I think they behave very well. They're fun for the dogs. But I've also just every time I get into them, I'm like, well, why did that happen this time? I, you know, the chucker, you can pattern the sage grouse, you can pattern the quail, you can pattern the blue grouse. And I'm like I said, this is probably just me because I'm from the Midwest. It seems like it's sporadic. I don't know. <laughs> just, just random, just shot in the dark. 
Sometimes they love Aspen. Sometimes they're Ponderosa Aspen mix. Sometimes it's just a clearing. You know, I don't know. It's very yeah. weird. Yeah. So when, when we do these profile episodes, you know, I ask everybody generally the, the same type of questions, but two specific ones uh, stand out. That's always give me an example of something you really screwed up on that you learned from. And then the next one is what's a what's an episode guest or topic that stands out to you that we've done on GDIY that's really helped you through something or you just really enjoyed for what it was? OK, the first one. I thought about this one. I alluded to this earlier that I could have, I've, I have four dogs and they're all young. I could go with a lot of routes with the mistakes I've made, but I'm going to go with magic in particular. I was forcing something on a dog that a wasn't ready for it. And B, I wasn't allowing him to just develop as a dog. I think that myself personally, you get a dog and then you're like, oh, I can't wait till he's this, this and this. So I start pressuring him to do that when especially him with that lower drive, I should have just focused on hunting him more and then working on the rest of this stuff. But that N.A. test, which it probably shouldn't even be called a test, puts a lot of pressure on you. And you're like, oh, I got you know, I got to do the breeder right and I got to do the dog right. And really in, in trying to do the dog right. I did it wrong because I was forcing something that just wasn't there. If I would have just allowed the water drive to develop more, I probably, he would have done better. And if I would allow him to do a little bit more of his stuff. I love it. That's a good takeaway and something that, you know, mirrors a lot of other people's takeaway when they kind of get into it. Cause I mean, let's be honest, the NA test, just by the name of it, everybody wants success for their dog. To your point, you know, you want to do right by the breeder. You want to do right by the dog. You don't want to go out and fail anything, right? People, you know, they put the test date on the calendar and it's like, oh, we got to pass it. And I try and remind everybody, like, it is called the natural ability test, you know, the natural ability. And so kind of just expose them, let it come up to, I'm pretty sure, you know, there's a lot of context missing here. So this could be a dangerous statement, but getting your dog just, you know, going to do a couple duck chases out in the water could have probably been enough to where the dog naturally goes into water on its own. You know, that's kind of what we talk about by exposing the dog to certain situations rather than training for it. Like you shouldn't have to train steadiness to go get a good quality in a score in the field, right? It's kind of the same thing in the water. But, you know, to our previous point, the tracking, that can be really tricky on how the handler goes about handing off the dog or releasing the dog, I should say. And that's why we talk about the track is really the most handler heavy portion of the test, where if you look at the scorecard, the dog's natural ability should shine through on everything else. And then if you do the do the release and you've done the exposure on the track the right way, you should see some pretty good results on that as well. Yeah. And I a hundred percent agree. And, and it's just, I think the dogs, as I'm going through them more, it's more about patience and just kind of letting the dog develop. You're just in such a hurry to get everything done. And with the UT test, I put no pressure on myself with him. I was just like, well, and then he just started taking to it. And I was like, well, maybe we can do this this year, you know, whereas with the NA test, which is just an evaluation, I was putting all this pressure trying to get him ready for that stuff. And it was, you know, it was a disservice to him. Yeah. We say it all the time, man, you know, go at the pace of your dog. So tell me what, what the, on the other question, what's an episode or guest or topic that we've covered that you found particularly useful or stands out in your head? Can I give you two? Sure. Have at it. Okay. 
So number one, without a doubt, training with Mo. All right. To hear someone with that kind of experience and knowledge with the dogs, just to hear them talk, which is something we don't normally get to do because of his hearing condition, to hear him talk like that is just very rewarding. So Mo was a very special one for me. And then the second one was your trainer fight with Bob and Jeremy. Absolutely. Yeah. What what do you like about that the most? Just the concept of it? Or did you actually pick up some useful information throughout? It, it was both. I loved the context of it because I spend time being a bird boy for a trainer. And I've spent some other time with a guy here. And you're, they never can agree that except for the other guys not doing it right. But then when you're just an observer, you're like, you guys are doing the same thing. It's just a different way. You know, it's the same concept. You just have a little different flair to it. But also, I picked up a lot because Jeremy is more truly you're doing the dog yourself where Bob is definitely more of a dog trainer. And Jeremy was going into more of the cultivating a dog from the beginning and creating the desired traits that you want. And especially with force fetch, you can create a retrieving drive. You can create a good handoff. You can do all of that stuff without force fetching a more Bob, who's a trainer. It's just like this dog's old enough. It's time to do it. Boom. Now this dog is force fetched and he knows what he is. He's doing big dog things. Whereas Jeremy's style was more... I'm learning through all the dogs. Just kind of sit back, pay attention to what you're doing, and then you, you're going to create the behavior you want, and it might be a little easier than going through the whole table thing. Yeah. No, I, th- I think that's fair, and there's a lot of my takeaways and, and thoughts on that episode, but that's something that is constantly coming up. I get told all the time is, you know, people want more trainer fight episodes. I'm like, guys, it's pretty difficult to line up a couple pro trainers willing to not only, you know, cover the same topic, but also essentially put their reputations out there like that. They both kind of stood by their programs in different ways and stuff like that. It's not every day that you can find two guys willing to uh, come on and be that, that, I don't know, authentic or outcoming with their thought process on everything. Yeah, I, I agree. And that's just the way that they are. And like I said, they were both going after the same thing. They just had a different style of doing it. And it was really cool that at the end, it wasn't like either one still thought the other guy was wrong. They were just like different situations require a different thing and different dogs require a different thing. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, while that we were talking about retrieving and, and force fetch or, or not doing force fetch, like it, while it was the same subject, it, it was still apples to oranges because they were coming at it from a different starting point, as you just described a minute ago. But Bobby, man, I enjoyed this. You know, I know it, it goes by fast, but we covered a lot of ground and figured out, you know, where you came at and getting into this dog world. And I appreciate you taking the time and coming on and sharing your story with us for a little bit. Thank you for listening to GDIY. If you enjoy this podcast, please remember to take a moment to rate, review, and share with a friend. Also, be sure to follow us and our partners on Facebook and Instagram under Gundog It Yourself. If you really enjoy the podcast and would like to contribute even more to the future content, please check out our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Gundog It Yourself. Thanks again and happy hunting. 
Everyone seems to have the same questions or concerns when they start trying to decide which kennel to purchase for their vehicle. Perhaps it's time to stop asking all the questions and just design the perfect setup that meets your exact needs. B-Pro Kennel specializes in designing and fabricating custom premier dog boxes handcrafted right here in the USA from high-grade, lightweight aluminum. They'll get you set up with the size dimensions, lighting, storage, battery boxes with solar charging, and anything else you can dream of. Stop stressing over buying the wrong setup, just have to replace it again in a year. Go ahead and check out bprokennels.com and get exactly what you want. If you're considering changing your dog's food soon, then be sure to check out Yukonuba Pro Performance. Their science-backed formulas are designed to take your dog to the next level of performance. They also now have the new puppy formula to help your pup start strong and live active. When looking at all the different food options, remember Yukonuba to help power their ultimate performance. Hey, what's going on, everybody? It's Bob from Lone Ducks Gun Dog Chronicles podcast. I hope you just enjoyed the episode you just listened to. And if you did, I think you'll enjoy hopping on ours. We've got professional retriever trainers and upland bird dog trainers from across the country and world sharing their tips and tricks and great stories to help you and your dog get ready for the season. We'll see you there.